When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks to PhysicianLoans.com for helping support free, open-access medical education and this podcast. Medical students and doctors have unique needs when it comes to buying a home. Whether you're a medical student about to start residency or are a bit further along in your career, the team from Physician Loans will help you both navigate the complexities of the home buying process and secure the financing you need. PhysicianLoans.com Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter Series for the U.S. MLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1, dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Stuart Bryant. Today we have the rest of our hematology review with med school tutors Eli Fryman. Hope you enjoy. So next is an eight-year-old boy who comes to the office because of red spots on his eyes and inside of his mouth for two months. Medical history includes epistaxis, which has decreased in frequency and severity over the years. His mother also says that if he gets a cut, it seems to bleed for an abnormally long amount of time. Physical examination shows conjunctival and buccal purpura. Laboratory findings are normal, including a platelet count, prothrombin time, activated partial thromboplastin time, and administration of DDAVP, which is desmopressin, does not improve the patient's bleeding time. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, bernard soulier syndrome, B, Glanzmann's thrombosthenia, C, hemophilia A, D, von Willebrand's disease, or E, hemophilia B? I won't give the answer on this one because these choices do make this a little more difficult question. So walk me through it. Going through the question strategy again, most likely diagnosis, you look at them, okay, we're thinking about coagulopathies again. So going through the first sentence, an eight-year-old comes to the office because of red spots on his eyes at the inside of his mouth. Not really sure what to make of that. Red spots kind of sounds like bleeding, especially in the context of a hemophilia question or a coagulopathic question, excuse me. But I'm going to go to the second sentence and read that medical history includes epistaxis, which is decreasing frequency and severity over the years. So epistaxis, red spots, now I'm thinking platelet disorder, right? I'm thinking mucosal bleeding, which to me says platelets more than the deep bleeding of the hemophilia from the last question. But I have to keep in mind that platelet number and platelet function are both things that could be an issue in this patient. So I'm looking for signs of thrombocytopenia versus poor platelet function. 
Mom says that if he gets a cut, it seems to bleed for a normally long amount of time. That's the bleeding time, that's platelet function. So we know that there is a platelet function defect. Although, I mean, it could be a number of defect as well. That just confirms that we've got a platelet problem. Right. His exam shows conjunctival and buccal purpura, doesn't add anything. Laboratory findings are normal, including platelet count. Boom, we have a platelet function defect right away because now I know that the platelet count is normal. And morphology also helps knowing that the platelets themselves are normal, at least normal in size. The PT is normal. The Ristocetin test is normal. That's really important. And the PTT is normal. Oh, yeah. I think I forgot to read that part. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is key. And we'll talk about the Ristocetin test a little bit. And then they give DDAVP, which does not improve the patient's bleeding time. So what we have here now is a platelet function problem that does not respond to the addition of von Willebrand. And that's really important because of the platelet function problems, looking at A, B, C, D, and E, Bernard Soulier is a platelet function problem. Glanzmann's thrombosthenia is a platelet function problem. Hemophilia A is not. Von Willebrand disease could be seen as a pseudoplatelet function problem because von Willebrand's interacts with platelet plugs. And hemophilia B is not. Interestingly enough, of A, B, and D, which are platelet function problems, two of them are going to respond to essentially extra von Willebrand's, right? Would, or would have a normal or an abnormal Ristocetin test. Okay. So this is one where actually knowing those tests is really important in order to differentiate, is this going to be A, B, or D? So going through those answer choices, we know that Bernard Soulier has an abnormal Ristocetin test because in Bernard Soulier, you're going to have an absence of that receptor and the Ristocetin test, which essentially looks at platelet aggregation with the help of von Willebrand's without that present, then the Ristocetin test would be abnormal. So with a normal Ristocetin test, we know that Bernard Soulier, it cannot be the answer because the von Willebrand fracture, at least in this question, seems to be doing okay. But the von Willebrand disease, interestingly enough, responds to DDAVP. That's a treatment for von Willebrand disease because you right. don't have enough von Willebrand. You add the desmopressin or DDAVP, vasopressin, they're all pretty synonymous. And that causes release of von Willebrand's from those Rebel Pilati bodies, everybody's favorite name, from the endothelium. You get more von Willebrand's factor and that helps improve the platelet aggregation and bleeding time. So with a normal Ristocetin test and a lack of response from DDAVP, you can actually pinpoint where in the platelet function pathway we're having an issue. And Glanzmann's thrombosthenia is not the most commonly tested platelet function problem. But what it is, it's an absence of a receptor, the glycoprotein 2B3A, um, which is really an in integrin aggregation receptor on platelets. And it's stimulated by ADP primarily, but it can also be stimulated by collagen, thrombin, et cetera. So if you have an abnormal platelet function because there's a lack of 2B3A, evaluation and management of von Willebrand is not going to fix that. And Ristocetin is evaluation of von Willebrand. DDAVP is treatment for von Willebrand. Bernard Soulier and von Willebrand disease fall on that spectrum. If those are off the table, then the only other platelet function defect we have left by elimination is glanzmans. Got it.
All right. Um, that was a lot. That was this is a more complex question, but it is. but being able to think through platelet function versus platelet number is a really key concept on the USMLE on the shelf exams during coursework and understanding the two major platelet glycoproteins, 1B and then 2B3A, as well as von Willebrand disease, will really help you evaluate these questions when you're like, oh, this is platelet function, now what? Got it. Why does this kid's um, nosebleeds, why, why do they improve over time? You know, that's a really good question. And the honest answer is, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't either. I'll probably just edit that out because I was yeah. like, I was hoping maybe you had <laughs> something on that. Cause... Yeah, no, but it, it, even so, I think it's important to recognize that I don't know why Glanzmann's thrombosthenia has decreasing severity and frequency over time. But that really shouldn't change how I'm thinking about this question in terms of a platelet function problem. And I think that's uh, another great example about how you don't need to understand every fact that they're giving you in the question to be confident in your thought process about that question, thinking that this is a platelet function problem. Hey everyone, I just wanted to chime in here to help answer this question before the gunners among you maybe rushed off to Google to search for it. It's a particularly, it was particularly difficult to find, so I figure I'll just share it with y'all. Basically, when you have Glanzmann's thrombocytopenia, there are different levels to which the genes for the receptors on platelets can be mutated, and there will be some working receptors present, even though they're less efficient. This means that there can still be clotting occurring over time, and that there will be a clot to form. It just may take a lot longer than a person with a normal platelet. Okay, back to the show. All right, let's move on. Now we have a six-year-old girl brought to the emergency department because of a rash. She has also had two episodes of nosebleeds at school in the past two days. Her mother states that the child is generally healthy, apart from having a cold three weeks prior. She takes no medications, has no recent history of travel, and no known drug allergies. Physical examination shows a purpuric rash on her face and non-palpable petechiae. There is no organomegaly, lymphadenopathy, or joint pain. Laboratory values show hemoglobin and white blood cell count are normal, but her platelet count is low at 20,000. Which of the following is abnormal? A. Coagulation studies. B. A peripheral blood smear. C. Serum vitamin K. D. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Or E. Prothrombin time. And the answer here is a peripheral blood smear. All right, walk us through it. Yeah, so we can go through this question a little bit quicker because I think this is sort of the last part of the concepts. So it brings it home that we've been talking about so far. Yeah. Again, question strategy, which of these is most likely to be abnormal? I'm looking at testing. But again, the testing seems to be more coagulopathy blood studies. So again, I'm thinking uh, hematologic. And then a six-year-old comes in because of a rash, too nonspecific. I'm just going to read the next sentence. She's had two episodes of nosebleeds. Okay, now I'm thinking, again, mucosal bleeding, so platelet number or platelet function. However, the differential for healthy children who come in with coagulopathy, you have to think of leukemia, right? You just have to. You can't miss it. She's been generally healthy. She had a cold three weeks ago, remembering that 
viral syndromes in children are often a setup for immune dysregulation can be helpful because then you can think about, oh, is she having some autoimmune cell dysfunction or autoimmune hemolysis because of this prior cold? Again, thinking platelet function or count, if I'm thinking autoimmune post-cold platelet number or function, ITP is actually the first thing that comes to mind. Sure. Yep. Um, no meds, no travel, no history, no drug allergies. Great. Shows a purpuric rash on her face, non-palpable petechiae on lower extremities. Again, to me, that says thrombocytopenia. There's no organomegaly, no lymphadenopathy, no joint pain. That's really important because it brings leukemia lower on my differential. Lab values show a normal hemoglobin and white count. Again, those it would be very rare to have both of those be normal in a leukemic patient. So again, I'm thinking a platelet problem. Her platelet count is low as 20,000, thrombocytopenia, and a child, post-cold, ITP, done. So which of the following is most likely to be abnormal? Well, I would rephrase this question to make sure that I'm anchoring myself appropriately. In ITP, which of the following is most likely to be abnormal, knowing that this is a platelet number problem. Which is why having that diagnosis before re-examining the answer choices is so important. Absolutely. Because, and re-centering yourself on what the actual pathophysiologic change is, which is an abnormality in platelet number. Right. And that's important because your coag studies are going to be normal. Answer choice A, this does not involve your PT, it does not involve your PTT, that's out the window. Skipping to over to question to uh, answer choice C, your serum vitamin K level. Well, this has nothing to do with vitamin K. A lot of right. students will be like, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Sure, let's pick it. And that is completely the wrong thing to do. Vitamin K has nothing to do with platelet number. We're done. We're going to move on. ESR. This one's tricky because I think a lot of people expect this to be an inflammatory disorder. But the truth is that autoimmune cellular hemolysis does not necessarily cause an elevated ESR or CRP. That's just something to keep in mind that it's not always going to be, it's not a very sensitive finding for this kind of thing. The ESR should be normal. So that's down. And then the prothrombin time, again, that's more of a coagulopathy, clotting cascade type of problem. Again, I'm thinking platelet number. So that's definitely not going to be at the top. That leaves you with peripheral blood smear. And again, knowing the concept that when your serum is lacking or your peripheral blood is lacking certain cells, your marrow pumps out those cells as fast as they can. It's true Mm -hmm. when you're anemic, you get a reticulocytosis, you get an uh, increase in your red blood cell size because reticulocytes are large cells that are more immature. In ITP, you tend to get large platelets because your marrow is pumping out megakaryocytes as quickly as it can. You're also just going to see fewer platelets, which is why your peripheral blood smear would be abnormal. Just to go back to the ESR and D, Mm -hmm. my guess is that um, is included as a distractor, as an attractive option, because the mention of her purpuric rash uh, on her face with non-palpable petechia on both lower extremities. That's correct. I suppose if you're not being a very active reader, you might um, make an association between purpura, which are usually which are palpable in uh, Hanok Shinlan exactly. purpura, and uh, maybe latch on to that. I suppose is is as a reaching diagnosis if you're kind of lost at this this point of the question. But I think, like you've kind of demonstrated thus far, having a strategy can help avoid those sorts of 
um, desperate attempts at a point. <laughs> and I think that is a perfect example of what not to do, right? Yes, so exactly. if you are halfway through this question and you're not actively thinking, you see purpura, non-palpable, something on the legs, you think HSP, like, okay, so what does HSP present with? You know, you pick D. But HSP doesn't fit at all. With, exactly. <laughs> with your first two sentences, right? Right. The, the right. history, the epidemiology, it, the epi would be okay, but the history doesn't fit, right? HSP doesn't present with epistaxis. It presents with abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea, right? Right. Followed by rash. So, you know, or intussusception, right? I mean, something like that. It doesn't present like this. And it certainly doesn't present with massive thrombocytopenia, less you know, 20,000 or less. Yeah. So that's a great example of not relying on the second half of the question to make a diagnosis because you're going to get it wrong. Absolutely. All right, let's do one more. Okay. All right. An 86-year-old woman comes to her primary care provider's office because of fatigue, altered mental status, and ataxia for the past three months. Physical examination shows conjunctival pallor and loss of lower extremity proprioception. Laboratory testing shows a hemoglobin of 8.9 and an MCV of 103. A blood smear shows macrocytic erythrocytes and hypersegmented neutrophils. Which of the following lab values will also most likely be elevated? A. Ferritin. B. Hemoglobin S. C. Factor 5. D. Methionine. Or E. Methylmalonyl-CoA. And the answer here is E, methylmalonyl-CoA. This one was easy for me because <laughs> I'm giving a lot of people folate all the time mm -hmm. um, uh, as an OBGYN. So I'm, I'm conscious of the uh, potential diagnosis in, in those who get folic acid supplementation without uh, the concomitant other thing that they would need to prevent some of this patient's symptoms, but I'll let you go through this question. Absolutely. And I really like this question because I think it's a great example of having a broad differential at the beginning and then narrowing it based on the data that's presented to you within the question. Yeah. I also really like this question because the boards adapt to average student knowledge and if 99% of people would get this question right, if E was, what's the diagnosis vitamin B deficiency, then they're going to ask you one step deeper. Right. And that's really important to know because what I tell my students is that when they're using their question banks or using multiple choice tests and the question is 80 plus percent right, I say, hey, you got to know a step deeper because yeah. someone's going to see that and someone's going to see this is too easy. We need to ask something different. So it is so rare nowadays on the USMLE, on shelf exams, to see a first level question about vitamin B deficiency and folate because megaloblastic anemia, everybody and their mother could tell you that it's probably B12 or folate. It is right. one of the most known buzzwords in the USMLE. So if you know, or if you're doing questions, if you're studying and you feel like, wow, literally everybody knows this, go a step deeper. Learn a yeah. little bit more about it because they're going to ask you that second level question and that's what's going to get you. And that's why I also like this question. Yeah. So going through question strategy, which of the following lab values will most likely be elevated? Well, that's good to know because now I'm thinking to myself, okay, I need a diagnosis and I need to know something about it. 
And I looked through the answer choices and honestly, okay, they're lab values. There's not much I think you can infer from this other than yes. it looks biochemy and I'm going to move on. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah. 86 year old woman. That's important. Knowing that we're not thinking of pediatric illnesses prevents presents to her PCP because of fatigue, AMS and ataxia. This is a really broad differential, right? So thinking of fatigue, obviously blood disorders, cancer comes to mind. 86 year old people might also just be tired at baseline. That might not be pathologic. We don't know. Altered mental status is going to be abnormal. How many ways could a geriatric patient become altered? The answers are pretty much endless. Yes. Um, the high yield point that I would point out is never forget toxicology or polypharmacy. It is yep. such an issue in geriatric patients, but because it is not an quote unquote internal problem, a lot of students actually forget about it. Remember yep. that polypharmacy is a huge cause of morbidity and even mortality in this age group. And anytime you see non-specific symptoms, think pharmacology. Ataxia is a little more concerning. Ataxia out of these three is the most specific. And because of that, I'm going to focus on ataxia. When you have a patient who presents with multiple nonspecific complaints, focus on the one that has the smallest differential. Fatigue could be anything. AMS could be anything. But ataxia is a neurologic problem. And when you have neurologic problems, you are thinking to yourself, is this brain? Is this spinal cord? Is it peripheral nerves? Is it neuromuscular junction? Is it muscles? There are five locations in the nervous system, right? So right off the bat, because of the altered mental status and ataxia, I'm thinking central nervous system because peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, muscles doesn't present with alteration in mental status. So ataxia and altered mental status is more specific and really helps me think is this brain, is the spinal cord. And the things that come to mind right away are, well, could this be normal pressure hydrocephalus? She's altered and ataxic. I haven't heard anything about urinary problems, but I'm right. keeping my mind open to it. Yep. Or is this the more common vitamin deficiency that we hear about so frequently? But also keeping in mind, altered mental status and ataxia could be stroke. It could be ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. It could still be tox. It could still be really any number of central nervous system lesions that could present with an alteration in gait, proprioception, et cetera. But it helps me localize it a little bit because fatigue, AMS could be anything, but AMS and ataxia tends to be central. So thinking about the physical exam, pallor and loss of lower extremity pro proprioception. Well, the lower extremity proprioception localizes me to the spinal cord, right? To those dorsal columns really is what I'm thinking about. And when you have dorsal column localization combined with pallor, which is anemia, there's really only one thing that can be. So when I'm thinking of a central lesion that presents with dorsal column involvement and anemia right away, this is B12 or folate deficiency. Oh, wait, but it's central, so it has to be B12, right? Yep, so exactly. I think a lot of students forget that when you get to the dorsal columns, you're not thinking folate anymore. It actually only is B12. So right yeah. away, I have a diagnosis. And then I kind of walk through the rest of this and challenge the question to prove me wrong. Hemoglobin is low. That's consistent. MCV is up. That's consistent. Macrocytic erythrocytes and hypersegmented neutrophils. They're giving hmm. it to you. They're giving it to you. But even if you didn't remember what the smear looked like, who cares? You have an answer. Okay. But now they're asking you about the biochemistry, which of the following lab values will most likely be elevated. And remembering that 
B12 is a really important cofactor for the synthesis of two common biochemical compounds is really important, right? So the first is succinyl-CoA and the second is methionine, less important than what they're actually made from, which is methylmalonic acid or methylmalonyl-CoA and methionine, it comes from homocysteine. So anytime you have a patient, in fact, the diagnostic criteria for B12 deficiency is not actually low B12. Certainly you'd expect to have a low B12, but many patients with B12 deficiency actually don't have critically low B12 values. Exactly. If you have a patient who presents with a concern for B12 deficiency and they have an elevated methylmalonyl-CoA, you have a diagnosis right there. Exactly. Um, and this is one of those questions where I stress the importance of going a step deeper on questions or concepts that are so ubiquitous in USMLE studying, because if more than 80% of students know it, they're going to stop asking it. Absolutely. So looking at ferritin, so uh, I guess it's important to note ferritin levels tend to be low in those with iron deficiency anemia, but you'd also expect to see the blood smear to have uh, microcytosis and hypochromia. The hemoglobin S, that's just the sickle cell hemoglobin. And there's no indication that this patient has signs or symptoms of, of sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. uh, factor five is the clotting factor that we have beat to death uh, <laughs> thus far today. So that leads me to this. If I didn't know, I would be between um, methylmalonic acid and methionine. Mm -hmm. I guess, what if I'm stuck between those two as, as a student? I'm like, oh, I know it's one of these. I know one is elevated um, prior to the synthesis of B12. I know this is B12 deficiency, but I just can't remember if her methionine or methylmalonic acid uh, levels will be elevated. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to give you a magic bullet here, but unfortunately, sometimes the test does just ask you facts. And there's no way around not knowing, oh, shoot, is the methionine the precursor or is it the product? Is the methylmalonyl-CoA the precursor or the product? What I will say is that if you are stuck between two very good-looking answers, the most important thing to do is pick quickly. Because in my experience, students tend to perseverate on one or the other and expect some stroke of brilliance to hit them in the next two minutes. And say, right. oh, okay, I've remembered now. If I just stare at this question for another five minutes, I'm going to figure out what the right answer is. The truth is they don't. And if you get it down to a 50-50, the rate of students getting the answer choice correct, I should actually do a, a real study on this. But in my yeah. anecdotal experience, if students get it down to a, two answer choices and just honestly don't know, the percent correct is completely independent of how much time you spend on it. So if you spend two seconds, so. if you spend yeah. two seconds on it, if you spend two minutes on it, it's 50-50. So pick it, get it wrong, get it right. Just do one of them because you've got 39 other questions to answer or 30, exactly. 43, depending on the test. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I would say that's actually the most important thing. Sometimes you're going to get a 50-50 and be stuck. It's okay. If you get half of those right, you're doing all right. All right. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure. And as traumatic as it was to have to go back and think through some of these <laughs> blood disorders. Uh, it's what makes medicine fun. Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. 
just share an episode, tag at Boards Insider on Twitter or Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram, and you'll be entered to win the Study Smarter Contest, which is going to be a $50 Amazon gift card at the end of the series. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is The Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check Two O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at twoo'clockcourage.com or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.